finale. It's here. I can't believe it. It, it is here. It's happening. Season 14. We're about to go into season 15. Bangers exclusively. Yeah. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, though, like, I was watching a clip today in social studies class of the I Have a Dream speech and, like, the March on Washington. And I just had this, like, overwhelming moment where I thought about all of the women that we've covered that were there. Yeah. And I just, like, closed my eyes and was like, they're all in <laughs> they're the crowd. All they're all there. And so Bob amazing. Dylan, because Joan Baez <laughs> made him. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, I just, it was one of those things where like a moment like that would never come to my head except yeah. like on a random Thursday morning at 10, 15, but it was really cool experience. Yeah. It's also how I feel when I think about like the Chicago World's Fair where I'm like, man, what a party. Everybody yeah. was there. Like, <laughs> join me. I love thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> what a grand old time. Meanwhile, it was like a nine month thing. Like they probably never crossed paths. <laughs> no. But who cares? <laughs> um, but we're not yeah. had it here to talk about the World's Fair today. No. Not that I know. Not, in my, not, not in, in my story either. No, okay. Um, Ooh, we're in the clear. <laughs> Woo. Mark me safe from talking about the Chicago World Fair. <laughs> we're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women from history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. No. Drinkers at best. <laughs> we're even getting worse at that in our old age. I know. I know. Hangovers. I'm down and out for full days now. Full days. Tired. Oh, Headache. God exhausted i used to like bounce right back yeah i'd be like ready for a round of golf before i've never golfed in my life (laughs) i was out the whole day monday just from easter awful yeah because we're big easter drinkers (laughs) the best of the best price is Um, risen so anyways uh but yeah it's gonna be a good time tonight Mm -hmm. we're gonna have a couple of cocktails we're gonna talk about ladies and this is our season finale. It's so crazy. I know. Ugh. Unbelievable season. We yeah. swam ourselves right out of the winter. Yes. <laughs> and into the joyous land of spring, summer slash. I feel like throughout this season, the cocktails went from like dark and heavy to like light and fruity. It's perfect. It's like so clear where we are when we're making our cocktails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're busy. Yeah. You're busy. You are going to the local tulip field. Oh, by your neighborhood. Allie oh, yeah. just went to ours. Sherwood Gardens. It's beautiful. A delightful place. Mm-hmm. Just a literally a neighborhood garden that everyone decided we're just going to plant a shit ton of tulips. We're going to pitch in every year. Every single year. And you just year feel like you're this. in a little fairy garden. You like, literally feel like you're Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. In this place. Let it's me tell best. you this week when we went, there was a man that hung hula hoops from the tree <gasps> and then sat down and played the fiddle while children <laughs> used his hula hoops and danced around to his music. I'm not lying. I have pictures. My kids were hula hooping with a fiddle playing man. <laughs> well, and... I love that it's hidden. Oh, like, yes. I it's can... in Baltimore City. Secrets. Right in the middle. And I, <laughs> I literally, I used to be in walking distance from it, and I yeah. could never find it again. Yeah. Like, it's like, I like, always have the wardrobe. <laughs> I always kind of have to look it up, which makes me so mad at myself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyways, you're going through the tulip fields. Guy's playing fiddle. So you're hula hooping uh-huh. while listening to us. <laughs> There's a lot going on in your life right now. <laughs> but you can't Google while you're hula hooping. No, never. So you might be wondering, what do these women look like? Well, don't worry. We're <laughs> going to describe them for you. Mm. In a little segment we like to call. That's wrong. Nope. <laughs> that was at the end. How long is yeah. it going to take you? 
A hundred years. We're going to get, get a little, a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing Julie Andrews. So Dame Julie Andrews. Dame Julie Andrews. Calm down, everybody. <laughs> Calm down at home. She has short blondish locks with a sweeping bang. Mm -hmm. She has soft skin, blue eyes, pink lips, and a pleasant smile. She's got these great, almost sharp, but almost soft cheekbones. And she is just too lovely to describe. It's yeah. really hard to like paint a picture of her. Uh, and she's also aging extraordinarily <laughs> gracefully. So well. Uh, what would you add to what Julie Andrews looks like? I can't even explain it. I would say she's like one of those. I. She always has short hair. Yes, I want to add that to the physical description. Yes, 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 yes. I, short blonde locks. Short blonde locks because I have never. I know that she had long hair at some point, mm -hmm. but I would never ever picture her with long hair. No, it's like your aunt Terry. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny to me that like one of her big characters has black hair. Yes, because. <laughs> I think that's the only role she has where she has like a different hairstyle. Yeah. Than, like, I don't know. It just always seems to me like she's like, I don't care what the character looks like. She's going to have short blonde hair because mm -hmm. I have short blonde mm -hmm. hair. <laughs> Except for my Oscar winning yeah. performance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Who are you doing? What does she look like? I'm doing Alice Ball. Alice Ball is a young black woman with short curly hair. She has kind of like big, but like wide set eyes and very soft features um we don't have very many pictures of her um but the ones we have she is always in a graduation gown <laughs> yeah i was gonna say she always has a pinafore on <laughs> yep uh because she got a lot of degrees yeah um and i but i would guess that if we had more pictures of her she'd be pictured in a white lab coat and safety gear putting all sorts of cool science bacteria shit into test tubes give me that ppe baby mm -hmm. exactly and that's what alice ball looks like perfect <laughs> so do you want to know what you're drinking i do i love this color of this cocktail it is like a milky white but yeah. there is no cream in it yeah. i couldn't resist calling it perfectly perfect <laughs> couldn't resist it is one ounce of vanilla vodka, mm -hmm. one ounce of citrus vodka, a half an ounce of simple syrup, a half an ounce of creme de violet, which Ooh. is daring, Very daring, daring, I know. And then a half an ounce of lemon juice <sighs> with an orange twist and a flower. Oh, my gosh. Cheers. It is so good. That's delicious. I can't even taste the violet. No. It's like not overpowering. Oh I thought God. a half an ounce of violet. That's yeah, crazy. That's a lot. This is wonderful mm. cocktail. <laughs> mm. Yep. I'll would, drink that forever. I would make this again. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. And that's rare for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad usually. <laughs> but this I would make again. Well, and for the citrus, you use what, like raspberry? No, I brought out the raspberry, but then I found, uh, I have one that's a lemon mint. A lemon Or maybe mint. it's lemon basil. I'll show it to you on the counter. Okay, it's a really it cool me. vodka. It's, I want to drink this exact thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's so good. It is really good. Woo. And I love the flower and the orange peel that you garnished it with. Yeah. She's so lovely. I can't, I mean, she's so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, when it's funny is that is like the word to describe uh -huh. her. Oh, yeah. It's just lovely <laughs> what oh a lovely God. person yeah. okay tell me what you know about dame 
commander of the British Army, Julie Andrews. I know she's the queen of Genovia. Of course. I know she's a nun. She's yeah. a nanny. Mm-hmm. She's magical. Yeah. I know that she started on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that people are very upset that she was not in the movie version of My Fair Lady. Yeah. But honestly... Everyone turned out fine in that situation. <laughs> um, so <laughs> all is well. I'm glad it happened that way. Yeah. Personally. Um, and yeah, I know that she also had some troubles with her vocal cords later in life, which uh-huh. I'm excited to learn more about. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just know that she's like, again, just a lovely person. Uh-huh. And I heard her in an interview once where she was talking to Jimmy Fallon. She's like, my grandson was like at a birthday party and they were playing Mary Poppins. And he goes, why are you in the TV? (laughs) (laughs) That's adorable. It was so cute. So yeah, I'm excited to learn more about her. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, I read in terms of research before this episode, I've read both of Julie Andrews memoirs. Um, one is written from her early life in London to when she got cast as Mary Poppins. And the second one is like Mary Poppins to now. So they're both excellent. And she reads them. If you do audiobooks, you just get to listen to her voice all the time, mm-hmm. which is like so again, lovely. <laughs> I also watched a whole bunch of interviews, the BBC documentary about her life and then did some basic online reading. I should also say we have done an episode on PL Travers and on Mary Poppins. <laughs> so we're really completing the triad here of Mary Poppins fan lore. I think we've done it. I think we're good because yeah. Mrs. Banks is frankly not enough of a character to do a whole episode on. <laughs> No, unless we wanted to do Emily Blunt, we could really Ooh. pile on. That's true. That's true. Um, did you hear the story about how they wouldn't let early in their relationship John Krasinski like into London, like his passport wasn't coming out right? And he was like, No, I'm married to a British woman. And they were like, Who? And he, was <laughs> like, he goes, Emily Blunt. And they go, Sure. <laughs> sure you are. Sure you are. Producer was just telling me that story. <laughs> I love that so much because it's about time a handsome white man was put in his place. Yeah. It's about them. <laughs> Wait a minute, John Krasinski. <laughs> yeah, because Emily Blunt's too good for him. Although I don't he's even, a great guy. I, I know nothing about him. <laughs> I, he's also lovely. I literally think that Jay could walk in and be like, I'm Emily Blunt's husband. They'd be like, okay. Come on in. <laughs> Welcome, sir. I believe that. Welcome, sir. <laughs> okay. So, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Julie Elizabeth Wells was born October 1st, 1935 in Surrey, England. Her mom, Barbara, was married to a man named Ted Wells, a teacher of metalwork and woodwork. Even though Julie's last name at the start of her life is Wells, he is not her bio dad. Okay. She was conceived as a result of an affair that her mother had with a family friend. I know. Julie did not know this until she was about 14 or 15 years old. (sighs) Scandalous. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to (laughs) call Ted her bio dad, Ted Wells. Because, like, that's how she was raised. Like, 
this is my biological father and he treated her as such. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Yeah. With the outbreak of World War II, when Julie was very young, her parents did divorce. It doesn't quite say why, but obviously there's already extramarital affairs. And the war is hitting London really hard. So I imagine the stress of this difficult time is hard on any relationship. Mm -hmm. And both of them remarried really quickly, which kind of indicates to me that they already had other people kind of on the side. Mm -hmm. But because of that, Julie was carted back and forth a lot between different families. Her mother married another man named Ted, Ted Andrews, and this is where she gets her last name from, her stepdad. Um, And then her father married a woman named Winifred Burkhead, who was a war widow from World War II. During the war, her father became, her bio father, became something of a military hero in that he helped evacuate children during the Blitz. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. And her mother and stepfather were working to perform and entertain the troops around London. Julie briefly lived with her father, bio father, and brother. But her dad sent her to live with her mom and stepdad pretty shortly as her dad felt that they could better provide for her and her artistic side and, like, who she was. So Julie had been calling ted andrews uncle ted for a long time but her mom didn't like that and wanted her to call him pop and continue to call her dad dad or daddy and julie hated this switch Mm -hmm. she did not want to switch what she was calling him she didn't feel connected to him in the same way especially since with her mom and stepdad she was really poor and they were living in the slums of london It was a really dark period in her Mm. life. Her stepfather was a drunk and kind of violent when he was drunk. And twice, she talks about this in her memoir, he attempted to get into her room to get into bed with her (gasps) when he was drunk. So a lock was fitted to her door for protection. Her mom at this age, like, never really would, like, own up to it. She would be like, oh, he just didn't know what he was doing. Later on, her mom definitely kind of, like, came to terms with it. But at this time, it's, like, really uncomfortable for her. That fucking sucks. Really That the solution is, we'll put a lock on your door. Not, we'll get this man out of the house. Out of the house. (laughs) And this is, like, the last name I'm forcing you to take. And I'm forcing you to call him daddy. Right. Because it's not, like, because at first I was like, oh, maybe she, like, when she was getting really loves famous, him. like maybe she like chose to be like, oh, like there's already a Julie Wells, so like I'll be Julie Andrews. But right. like it also kind of sucks that she's famous off of a name that she did not want. Yeah, that sucks. But mm. it happens to a lot of so women. many. <laughs> <laughs> so her mother and stepfather were part of a touring theater group, kind of like vaudeville esque around London, and their stage performances had started to improve after the war and people were going out again so they could kind of start to afford a better lifestyle a better house her stepfather sponsored lessons for her first at an independent art school in london and then with a soprano voice instructor she says that this was her stepdad trying to get close to her but at this point he didn't really see that she was talented it was just like put my kid in something yeah you know Julie's soprano voice instructor was like a third mother to her. And she says, I had more mothers and fathers than anyone in the world. <laughs> and her teacher. I'm, gonna say, I'm really losing track of them at this point. I know. We're, we're almost out of the water with these people. Don't worry. Her teacher 
was shocked by Julie's voice. She says she had absolute perfect pitch, which is one of the things she's famous for, perfect pitch. But Julie denies that her voice was that good when she was a kid. She's like, I love this woman. I was like her pupil, you know, star pupil, star pupil mm-hmm. whatever. But she's like, I had like a weak singing voice. I was like a child, which obviously this is not true. Like teachers can hear whether or not somebody's good at yeah. something. Um, in terms of her voice, she had a high, thin voice when she was young. Uh, so she opted to sing bright, sunny, full-bodied songs as opposed to slow songs in a minor key as mm-hmm. opposed to like operatic style songs. Mm-hmm. In the mid-40s, Julie started to perform. She would perform on stage with her parents. She was unbilled, though. One day her parents were just like, instead of going to school, take a nap this afternoon. You're performing with us tonight. So she would stand on a milk crate and sing into the mic with her stepfather while her mom played piano. And she was traveling around the UK in luggage racks on trains all the time singing. Oh my God. I know. It is wild because I saw a video a while ago of like a young Julie Andrews mm-hmm. performing for the Queen. And mm-hmm. I had no idea that she We're had started there. that young. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so young. Her... Stepdad then introduced her to a managing director, Val Parnell, who was in control of like a certain like performing, you know, contract. And he was prominent in London. Julie's like 12 years old. So she makes her debut solo at the London Hippodrome where she performs for a year. Here's how the show went. A man would come on stage and start making balloon animals. And he would be like, does anybody want one of these? And she would be like, I do, I do. And run up to the stage. And then they'd chat for a bit and somehow start talking about singing. And then she would sing a solo and everybody would love it. So she's a grifter. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And... Then at 13 years old, because this show was going exceedingly well, as Katie just mentioned, Julie became the youngest solo performer to ever be seen in a royal variety performance before King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who was the queen mother. Little baby Julie. And when you look up these videos, she's got like the long curly hair. Yeah. Like the, her little high voice. I just and love her. Julie Andrews. Yes. <laughs> she's so cute. <laughs> I was like, that's the same person. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. <laughs> After this, Julie followed her parents to radio and to TV, and she performed musical interludes on the BBC comedy shows, and then she appeared on the West End as a princess in Aladdin, and then as an egg in Humpty Dumpty, and in this egg performance is the first time she meets Tony Walton, who ends up being her first husband. Then she performs on a smaller stage in Jack and the Beanstalk and Little Red Riding Hood and Cinderella. So by 1952, she's doing voiceovers for animated features. This is all before she's 19 years old. She has a variety of experience. Now, I don't think she went to school very much, (laughs) but she was everywhere. You heard it here first. Julie Andrews, dumb as a rock. An idiot. An idiot (laughs) is what we would say. Schooling does not... (laughs) dictate anything like no she just i mean she had so much experience in every possible genre yeah at as a teenager yeah i can't believe that her life is so wild when she's that young (laughs) i know especially for how much of a steady person she seems to be i feel like she's like everybody's like lovely aunt my girl you know what i'm saying she is like she is i wouldn't go as far as to say she's my grandma because no, obviously the Queen of England was my grandma. Right. Sure. Before she tragically passed away. Right. But... Just this year. <laughs> but yeah. Queen Elizabeth was my grandmother. Julie Andrews 
my great aunt. Right, I would say. So so really we're just trying to become part of the British colonies so really, again. So really what you're saying is <laughs> we made a mistake. <laughs> we Sorry guys. <laughs> Universal health care, please. <laughs> Money, please. Okay. All of this, like I said, happens while she's a teenager. But then she makes it to Broadway when she's 19. An English comedic actress calls up Broadway and is like, you need to cast this baby girl. <laughs> and Julie is anxious about moving to New York. She's like, oh, I don't know. I'm the breadwinner and caretaker for my entire <laughs> family. Like she's taking care of her siblings and paying for her parents to exist. So she's nervous about it. Um, and also she had no idea how to research a role or study a script. Nevertheless, she is a hit, and critics call her the standout of the performance she's in, which is The Boyfriend. After a year of acting uh, on Broadway in The Boyfriend, she was approached to... People are asking her to audition. <laughs> this is upsetting to me. She's approached to audition for the role of Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Pygmalion, one might say. <laughs> <laughs> she's offered the part after her third reading and she said she felt like she could be Eliza and really find and understand her she had lived in the poor part of London she had been with the rich people in London she knows what she's doing she spent a long time working with an acting coach to nail down the character and she refers to this time as the best acting lessons she ever received when My Fair Lady opened on Broadway the play was a huge success but she learned that she had to tone down her Cockney accent because Americans don't understand it oh. <laughs> she was doing like a real Cockney accent <laughs> Like, everybody was like, what? Where are the subtitles on Broadway? Yeah. <laughs> I need help. Help me. Do you know they had that at the opera? Stop. They have, like, little things in front of your seats that have the translations as to what they're saying because they're all in, like, Italian. Italian. Perfect. I love that. Give me a subtitle. So they needed that for this. <laughs> I love this. Subtitles help me to hear better. I know that's weird. Yeah. But, like, I put them on for every show, every movie. I'm not that person. I need it. Yeah. It's weird. It distracts me too Well, much. also, though, like, I have kids that talk over the whole movie. Oh. <laughs> so it's a different vibe. I didn't start this yes. till after my kids were, like, teenagers. And I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to watch everything everywhere all at once, and you won't stop running your goddamn mouth. That's what happens. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So then when she does the show, she does a two-year run on Broadway as Eliza Doolittle. Perfect. And then the show goes to the West End in London, and she has to reverse the accent change. She has to go back <laughs> to speaking in a Cogsy accent that's different. Um, but then Rodgers and Hammerstein are so impressed with her that they offer her the role as Cinderella on CBS TV broadcast to 107 million viewers mm. in 1957. I'm sorry. That's so many viewers for 1957. But also there were like two channels. <laughs> there there were two things you could watch and no Netflix. So like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fireside chats are over. What do you do next? I think about that a lot because they say that TV shows now, like the least popular TV shows in like the 90s got like for like millions of viewers, like so many to, like, more the than like Netflix the shows. most popular shows nowadays. Yeah. It's so weird to think about because there just weren't that many options. <laughs> there weren't. 
She was nominated for an Emmy for her performance as Cinderella, and then she records her first album, Singing. She's on the Ed Sullivan Show. She's on What's My Line. (laughs) And then in the 60s, her and her close friend, Carol Burnett, do a show together at Carnegie Hall. This is a reoccurring thing that they do where Carol Burnett is herself on stage, and Julie Andrews plays her role, which is her uptight, British mm-hmm. self, which is funny because Julie Andrews is hysterical. Yeah. But she all or like the comedic thing that she does is her timing as a stodgy British woman. Yeah. It's so funny. I love those performances they have together because Carol Burnett is such a good singer and she does not get a whole bunch of credit for that. Right. And it kind of makes me mad. <laughs> and it's like, the, it's the same thing for both of them. It's like Julie Andrews is really funny and yeah. doesn't get credit for that. And yeah. Carol Burnett has a beautiful voice and mm-hmm. doesn't get credit for that. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So then she's also on, you know, she's Camelot. She's in Camelot. She's Guinevere. Who cares? <laughs> so the Warner Brothers are casting for the film adaptation of My Fair Lady. But Jack Warner is like, you know what? Julie lacks sufficient name recognition and the part went to Audrey Hepburn. Julie's obviously devastated and it's even worse that like a bulk of the singing in the movie was dubbed over, which Julie was like, I could have done that. Warner Brothers later said the decision was entirely financial. Hepburn had never made a flop. Never once. And Julie says, I understood their decision. Broadway was a small pond compared to Hollywood. And like, (laughs) she says... I wish I could have recorded the film just for prosperity's sake. What a confident bitch. To be like, I want my performance of My Fair Lady to go down in history. I understand why Audrey got it. <laughs> but, like, I wish they would have, like, also recorded it with me. Yeah, well, because it is kind of a bummer that, like, she was so associated with the role until, like, now Audrey is. Right. You know. And she had done it for three years on Broadway. Like, two years on Broadway and one on the West End. Yeah. So it's like she lot. did the role for a big portion of her life and Audrey did it once you know so it's like I wanted to record my part of it (laughs) which I get however in 1963 Julie was offered the role of Mary Poppins Walt Disney who was a man of vision saw her perform in Camelot and subsequently was like you are it and once that man has his mind on something oh yeah there's no more if we ever had a man show I would want to do him (laughs) Julie initially turned down the offer because she was pregnant. She even returned to London to give birth. But Disney's like, oh, we're going to wait. So after her pregnancy, Julie receives a call from P.L. Travers, who is like, you are much too pretty, of course, for the role. But you've got the nose for it, which like, what the fuck's wrong with my nose? She has an adorable nose. I detest B.L. Travers. She is She's a wench. Such an <laughs> a wretch of a woman. I, I, I hated researching her so much. One of our least favorite shows. I, we will bring I it up over and over again. Episode. It's so bad. It's so bad. Um, but Disney really wanted Julie. They rented a house for her and her family to stay in, in L.A. Um, they had nannies bringing her daughter, Emma Hamilton, Emma Walton, now Emma Walton Hamilton, to the set so that she could see her while they're filming. Um, and Julie really fleshed out Mary Poppins' character. She gave the character a particular walk. She gave her a turned out stance. She says that she could not have had a better introduction to film because Disney was a well-oiled machine. And this is yeah. her first time starring in a film. 
The schedule was unrelenting. The technical details were very specific. There were songs in the movie that they didn't want to put in. And then she was like, but I love that song. And they're like, okay, we'll put it in. <laughs> and, and just as a fun fact, Julie had to provide the whistle for the animatronic Robins. Because robots can't whistle. <laughs> didn't you know? Yet. <laughs> Not yet. So Mary Poppins became the biggest box office drawl in Disney history. Variety lauded Julie's performance as a triumph. The film was nominated for 13 Academy Awards and won five, including one for her as Best Actress. She also won the Golden Globe for that. She won a Grammy for the soundtrack. So she's got like half of an EGOT <laughs> of one film already. That's insane. And the Oscar being the hard one. I think Tony's the hard one, but everybody says Oscar. No. Yeah, I think Tony's the hard one, Tony's right? definitely the hard one. Yes. I would say the Oscar is... That one is hard. And no. Tony's the hard... Yeah. Grammy's the easiest. Grammy's definitely the easiest. You can just read an audiobook and people like it. And they're like, yeah. oh, you have a Grammy. Because... <laughs> A Tony Award, like, you actually have to go on Broadway. Like, Broadway's so fucking hard. Like, we could technically get a Grammy for this show. Yeah. Like, there is, like, there, we're doing nothing. <laughs> it's insane. Grammys yeah. are so I simple. I think Tony's the hardest. Yeah, when people are like, I got 30 Grammys. I'm like, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so does Taylor. Um, okay. So, obviously, famously, in her acceptance speech for her Golden Globe, Julie said, and finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner, throwing the eternal shade at him for not casting her in the role that Audrey played. So good. It is good. Uh, there's a really cute picture of Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn, though, at that show where Julie's holding the Oscar. It's a really sweet picture. Yeah. But Julie really does have a sense of humor. For example, she loves seeing the bumper sticker, Mary Poppins is a junkie, referring to the acid trip she goes on in the film when she keeps jumping into chalk drawings. She finds that hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> then, um, to avoid being typecast, Julie jumps right into a comedy drama called The Americanization of Emily, for which she's nominated for a BAFTA. And she describes as her favorite film of really? all time. <clears throat> Just being right into a comedy after being like Disney Pleasant Land, you know, is fun. Yeah. But she didn't get to wait around long in her comedy drama time because she's very soon cast in yet another box office hit. The Sound of Music was the highest grossing film of the next year. She later said that she was ashamed to admit that when they asked her to read for the part and she was cast in it, she thought that The Sound of Music was a sentimental musical until she was like oh there's like nazis and shit and this this is crazy no she didn't quite know the full scope of it rehearsals took place in london filming commenced in austria the filming for this movie was extremely hard but not because of the schedule rather because of the weather in austria they were lucky to get in like a single shot in a day it was horrible and the film kind of got mixed reviews but the critics loved her performance Mm -hmm. loved her she did win a second golden globe for the role but while she was nominated for an oscar she did not win here's some fun facts about the sound of musical (laughs) she sang supercalifragilisticexpialidocious on the set for all the kids because they kept wanting her to sing it they were just like sing it again sing it again so she would sing that song for them also found out today supercalifragilisticexpialidocious doesn't get the red line in spell check it is considered spelled correctly wow 
That's a lot of letters. I love that. <laughs> I did too. I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay. Well, I also love, speaking of the weather, because I heard that like while she's doing the first number, like it's raining. Yes. While they were filming. <laughs> and like dark and they just like changed the exposure. Yeah. In the filming. Crazy. I know. I can't believe they did that. Also, during the I Have Confidence song, where Maria's, like, running late to the Van Tra- Von Trapp house, uh-huh. you know, where she, like, trips and stumbles over the rock? Uh-huh. That was not in the script. She, like, actually tripped, <gasps> which is adorable. I love her. She learned to play guitar so Maria could be more realistic. Um, and on set, her and Christopher Plummer had issues. <gasps> he did not like acting with her. What? He said on screen it was like being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card. Whoa. What a jerk. Okay. I'm sorry. She's too fun for you. She's too happy. Get out of here. Whatever. Wow. Yeah. No. That's no really wonder upsetting. you're so miserable and have a thousand children. I don't like this. Just sing Does goodbye really? when you blow a whistle. No, just in the movie. Oh, in the movie. Look at him with a real person. No. Um, one interesting thing about Julie, though, is every single role she had, she took lessons from it. For example, when she was in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, she went on the press circuit and mentioned that she didn't like her performance in it and later received a terse letter from Hitchcock being like, that's not your job to say how you think you did. Your job is to promote the movie. And she would always learn from things like that. She was like, you're right. That isn't my job. Mm -hmm. The next period in Julie's life is really difficult, though. She was in back to back box office flops Mm. and was going through a divorce with her first husband tony who she had had emma with Mm -hmm. despite the two flops she was nominated for golden globes for her performance but it's hard to get cast again to make money if it's only getting critical acclaim people don't care about that but she is kind of going through that series of time in your life when you keep asking yourself am i good enough am i good enough am i good enough Not but a year later, though, in 1969, she married director Blake Edwards and became the stepmother to his two children, Jennifer and Joffrey. Julia loves this man. They're together for the rest of his life. She's a wonderful stepmother. She's a wonderful mother to the kids that they adopt together. It's like a very happy relationship. He's the director of the Pink Panther movies, (gasps) just so we're all aware. Yeah. That's so Blake cool. Edwards, really famous director. And he also had to direct Julie Andrews through like some sex scenes and like kiss <laughs> scenes. Then they're not like super passionate sex scenes at this time in history. But like, it's really weird to have your husband be like, cut. Can you like touch her here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? No. I was just listening to an interview with Dave Franco where he had to do that with his wife, Alison Brie, because <laughs> they just did a rom-com together. But he was not the lead. He's just the director. <laughs> So then, like, the actor was like, it was kind of weird. Like, I'm just, like, in bed naked with his wife. And they're like, so what do you think? Should he touch my boob? I think he should touch my boob. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's so uncomfortable. (sighs) But, I mean, I guess if you're all actors, you get it. Yeah. Like, who knows? Okay. Julie was the first choice to play the English witch in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but Angela Lansbury was cast, and Julie continued to work on television because that's what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. She was working on the second iteration of the Julie and Carol show at the Lincoln Center, but also the Julie Andrews Variety Hour, which she won seven Emmys for (laughs) during its run. She did struggle throughout her career to be in sexy actor roles people Mm -hmm. didn't want to see her as that character they like she was in a lot of roles where she was a more serious character but like you said she's everyone's aunt everybody's like no that's not who you are you're a mary poppins you're a maria von trapp like Mm -hmm. we love you 
She and her husband adopted two Vietnamese daughters in the 70s. One of them later went on to be in Star Trek The Next Generation. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I'll also say in her book, she talks extensively about her stepson who really struggles with addiction and how it's impacted the family and what they have done to try to help him over the years. Julie just continues to do great things. She then starred in Victor Victoria, which is a famous gender-bending role that that. she was a part of. You've probably seen pictures of Julie Andrews in a suit with a martini glass and a cigar and a tie. The basic plot of the film is she is a female soprano trying to find work, and an agent comes up with this idea to make her a male performer pretending to be a female performer to draw crowds. (laughs) So she's a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. That's so weird. (laughs) She got nominated for her third Oscar for this role. And of the role, people say, Victor Victoria made a huge impact on the careers of its cast and crew, as well as the audience who flocked to see it, much of which was likely made up of gay viewers deeply affected by the film's Mm -hmm. messages and understanding and hope. Yeah, I love that. Which is really sweet. She also reunited for the third time with Carol Burnett for their variety show. Their friendship is one for the ages. Mm -hmm. She talks about one point when they were like sleeping in a hotel um, before a performance they had the next day and they were like sitting on the bench and they would always do these sketches together and they Mm -hmm. were just like doing a random sketch. They end up making out on the bench as part of this sketch and the elevator opens and these people just walk out and like walk away and then her and Carol just start bursting out laughing because they're like, it is going to be all over the gossip <laughs> that like Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett are in a like a loving relationship with oh, one another. Oh my God. I love that. I've never heard that story yeah, before. It's in her memoir and I was like, oh my gosh, that's hysterical. <laughs> Could you imagine? No. no, never, never. In the 1990s, Julie was named a Disney legend and she starred in a television sitcom and she was on an NBC special and then she's in the stage version of Victor Victoria. But... While she was finally nominated for a Tony for Victor Victoria, nobody else in the cast was. And she believed that they were entirely snubbed for their skill. And she was only nominated because she's Julie Andrews. So she turned down (gasps) the Tony nomination. And that's the only one she's missing. That's insane. She does not have a Tony. I can't believe she doesn't have a Tony. That's the only one. She was on stage all the time. That's upsetting. It is. She was forced to quit Victor Victoria, though, because of a hoarseness in her voice in 1997. She went into surgery in New York's Mount Sinai Hospital to remove a non-cancerous nodule from her throat. Later, though, she stated that the hoarseness in her voice was from strain. I didn't have cancer. I didn't have nodules. I didn't have anything. This botched vocal surgery led to the loss of Julie's singing ability, and she refused to sing on camera for decades. She emerged from the surgery with permanent damage to her vocal cords that destroyed her purity of sound and even gave her a raspy speaking voice. Pre-surgery, she had the same vocal range as Freddie Mercury, four (laughs) octaves. Oh, my God. With perfect pitch. Originally, the doctor said that she would regain her singing voice in six weeks, but it had been two years and it is still not returned so she filed a malpractice suit against the doctors who operated on her throat she has never recovered her famous four octave soprano but since 2000 she has had four surgeries to correct her speaking voice but she can't sing the way she used to devastating 
That's also like, I can't even imagine like <laughs> being like, oh yeah, I am the person that like ruined Julie Andrews' singing voice. Yeah. What? Or like being like, I don't understand how you could look at it and be like, yeah, 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 let's take those nodules off and then have other doctors look at it later and be like, there's nothing there. Like, what are you thinking? Oh my God. Crazy. Of any person to be like very, very careful with. Yeah. A professional singer should be like, that person right like, especially julie andrews yeah <laughs> our oh, our great aunt <laughs> she did keep busy though she was in the stage production of dr doolittle she recorded talking voices in so many cartoons um in 2001 she was made a dame commander of the order of the british empire by queen elizabeth ii and was among the guests of honor at queen elizabeth ii's golden jubilee also that year, she appeared with the goddess Anne Hathaway in The Princess Diaries, which was her first Disney appearance since Mary Poppins. Unbelievable. She was she also a perfect record with Disney. A, a perfect record. She was also in the sequel. She continued her work with Disney at this point as a nanny in the two films based on the Eloise books. Mm. So she was being a nanny. So fun. People <laughs> love seeing her as a nanny. Following this, she became an official ambassador for Disney's 18-month, like, 50th anniversary celebration for Disneyland called The Happiest Homecoming on Earth and appeared on stage during the curtain calls of Mary Poppins on the West End. Can you imagine watching it and then having Mary Poppins come out at the end? No. Like the true Julie Andrews? I would die. You have definitely heard her in a thousand different uh, cartoons. She was Queen Lillian in Shrek. She narrated Enchanted, the live-action Enchanted movies. She is in all of the Despicable Me movies, like, with Steve Carell and, like, the Minions. That's so crazy. She does voiceovers in all those movies. (laughs) In 2007, she was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from SAG. Uh, And while we're on the topic of Lifetime Achievement Awards, she has a flower named after her. The Julie Andrews Hybrid Tea Rose is known for its enchanted aroma and beauty. She published two memoirs, which we talked about earlier, Home and Homework, the most recent one in 2019, so it's pretty new. She was also named on the top 10 list of British actresses, and this list, oh my God, to be on this list, with Helen Mirren, Helena Bottom Carter, Judy Dench, and Audrey Hepburn, even mm. though she's not a British actress. <laughs> kind of. Isn't she Dutch? She was born in um, Brussels. Okay. But it's weird. Yeah. It's hard because she was like, born in brussels and then she was in um the netherlands and then she was like i literally wouldn't know what to say she was she's a european actress actually yes she is a european actress i would very much say that yeah because i was like that's weird that she's on this list (laughs) yeah i i I don't think i would call her british no though Mm -mm. i wouldn't either All through the 2010s, she does movies and voiceovers and is reading audiobooks. And then in May 2010, she comes back to sing after 21 years. She was to accompany the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Many times she appeared on TV saying that the rumors were not true, that she was not going to be singing, but some sort of speak singing. But she actually sang two solos and the fans loved it and gave her a huge standing ovation afterwards. I know I mentioned that she wrote two memoirs, but she has published 23 books. What? Mostly children's books, one of which she wrote with her daughter. And her pen name is that 
this is why you might not know her pen name is Julie Edwards to match her husband. Aww. She also did all the repeats. She's in the sequel of Shrek. She's in the sequel of Despicable Me. She goes on Oprah with all the Van Trapp children to discuss the 45th anniversary. Um, and after this Oprah interview, though, she has to rush to the hospital because her husband, Blake Edwards, mm-hmm. of 41 years, died of complications with pneumonia. Oh. She was with him with he when he passed, but of course her heart is broken. The two of them were grandparents to nine and great-grandparents to three. Oh. She went on to go on a tour in Australia with Nicholas Hammond, who was 14 when he did The Sound of Music with her, and they like just did a tour around Australia. <laughs> and then Lady Gaga did a melody of Sound of Music songs at the Oscars, and then when Julie walks out at the end, everybody does a massive standing ovation. She can't walk into a room and let I, people sit. Yeah. Come on, let's <laughs> sit down, everybody. <laughs> She did, though, decline the cameo role in Mary Poppins to avoid stealing the spotlight from Emily Blunt. But I think this was so stupid. Angela Lansbury is in 0.2 seconds of that movie at the very end. And it was just confusing. It have stolen the show. No, it was confusing. I was like, why is it Angela Lansbury instead of Julie Andrews? Does she not like Emily Blunt? I was like, I know it's coming from a good place. Yes. But I think that. It's not like they were like, ooh, why don't you come back and play, like, Mary Poppins' mom, you right. know, like, in a big role. Like, it was... I mean, Dick Van Dyke was, like, dancing on desks <laughs> in this comeback version. He didn't have a problem with that at all. As he, he wouldn't. No As he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, Julie Andrews is considered the most... Oh, wait. Before that, most recently, she narrated uh, Lady Whistletown in the Netflix <gasps> drama Bridgerton. I forgot I had to add that. I forgot that she's doing that. I love that show so much. I know. And just to narrate it, perfect. Okay. <laughs> Overall, Julie Andrews is considered the most loved performer in stage, television, and movie history. When she was a nanny on screen, she was our nanny. When she was escaping over the mountains in Austria, we were escaping over the mountains. When she was a loving grandma queen of Genovia, she was our loving grandmother queen. We sing with her. We laugh with her. Her voice is one of the most recognizable of all time. So I will end with a quote from Dame Julie Andrews herself. Sometimes I'm so sweet, even I can't stand it. (laughs) And that is Julie. What a great story. Julie Andrews. I feel like, who wouldn't like her? How could you not? Christopher Plummer. Yeah. What an idiot. <laughs> She's like a Valentine's Day card. Like, yeah, doesn't everybody want one yeah, of those? Of course. Like, yeah. that's what I wait for all day yeah. on Valentine's <laughs> Day. Send me Julie Andrews next year, please. And thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, we need to get into our second story, which is very different. A lot more uh, skin falling off. Love that. But that's okay. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back. Bye. We're back. Part two. Pink drink. Really cute cocktail. <laughs> pink drink, pink drink. But I think it's not supposed to be pink. No, it is supposed to be okay. pink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is pink. Yes. It is pink. It is fun. It has balls in it. 
<laughs> Perfect. This is another dessert-centric cocktail of mine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do you want to know what it is? I do want to know what it is. Okay. So this is called the ball method. Uh, it is two ounces of silver rum, coconut cream, lime juice, and you top it off with hibiscus ginger beer. Perfect. And you garnish it with some mochi, some bald dessert. <laughs> Cheers. Love it. It is delicious. I got to say, we ended the season on two dynamite cocktails. This, this is great. This is <laughs> a great a good day. Time. This is a great day for me. <laughs> Could not have asked for more. Oh, my gosh. I just, and I love the foam on top that comes. Mm-hmm. I literally was like, I'm just going to go into Target and see what kind of fun new, like, what juices speaks and sodas. to me? What speaks to you? So the Target brand favorite day makes a hibiscus ginger beer. And mm. I was like, what a weird fucking ingredient. So if you're wondering where to get it, it's Target. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Target. it's delightful. Um, all right. So cheers to that. What do you know about Alice Ball? <laughs> so I know very basic things about Alice Ball. I know that any picture I've ever seen of her, she's in a pinafore. Yep. She always has on a graduation cap. I know she is a black woman. I know, I mean, the pictures are black and white, so I'm assuming it was hard to be a black woman in the medical field. And so there's no spoily spoilers. I know that she solves a problem of biblical proportions. And that's all I know about Alice Ball. That's perfect. So... The sources today are the They Did That podcast. Mm. There was a Seeker video on YouTube, a SciShow video on YouTube, and a Wikipedia article. Um, what we know about Alice Ball personally is not a whole lot, which is very unfortunate, um, because she didn't keep a diary, which was really sad for us. Um, so we just don't know a lot about her. Um, and I want to say that a portion of her, good portion of her story takes place in Hawaii, which is why this cocktail has some hibiscus hibiscus and coconut and lime and rum and kind of a tropical flair to it um and also a piece of advice like keep a diary like just in case please just in case you don't even have to do anything great just like keep one yeah let everyone know what you are going to eat for breakfast from anne frank to queen victoria (laughs) keep your damn diary we need to know oh my gosh all right so let's get started Alice Augusta Ball was born on July 24th, 1892 in Seattle, Washington. I don't feel like we do enough people from Seattle. We don't. And I love the area. I mean, (laughs) Bella Swan, one might say. It's rainy Uh, enough for all the vampires in our lives. Uh, Her parents were James Presley and Laura Louise. She was the third of four children with two older brothers, William and Robert, and a younger sister named Addie, which I also love that name. Cute. Her family was upper middle class. Uh, Her father was a newspaper editor of The Colored Citizen. He was a photographer, and he was a lawyer. So her dad is very prominent in the community. He's doing lots of things. He's doing a lot. Her mother was also a photographer, uh, and that's because they got it from their grandfather. So Alice's grandfather, James Ball Sr., was one of the first black Americans to be a professional photographer. Wow. He used the um, daguerreotype method. 
I should have looked up how to pronounce that. Yeah, I sure. Did. I know what that means. I literally was like, <laughs> I'll just know when I, when I see it and I say <laughs> it and I didn't know. I don't yeah. know. Uh-huh. Um, but this is the process of printing photographs onto metal plates. Oh, so fun. it's, this is actually like kind of coming back now. Like I know the cast of little women did it. Yeah. It's pretty popular. I feel mm-hmm. like you can buy it at like art shows and stuff or yeah. like when you go to like festivals mm-hmm. and it is really cool because it just like, it gives it a very particular tone. Um, but he took photos of some pretty famous figures, including Frederick Douglass and Stop. Charles Dickens. Stop. Isn't that wild? Those was, two in the same sentence please. blows my mind. Uh, but it was a very intricate work with a lot of chemicals. And some speculate that watching her family work with this kind of photography inspired Alice to become interested in science. But despite being very prominent, even pioneering members of the black community, her parents still labeled Alice as white on her birth certificate. And we don't know if this was an accident or if it was an attempt to maybe give her a better chance in the future, fighting off prejudice and racism. You know, they're like, maybe if we put, because like she's a very light skinned woman. Very light skinned. They're like, maybe if we just like put white on here. It'll help her if she wants to pass later in life. I don't know. But either way, Alice Ball and her family moved from Seattle to Honolulu, Hawaii in 1903 in hopes that the warm weather would relieve her grandfather's arthritis. Um, So the family lived in downtown Honolulu and even had a separate photography studio downtown so they could still work on their craft. Atlas attended Central Intermediate School and showed an early talent for science and math. Her grandfather died shortly after the move, unfortunately, and in 1905, they relocated back to Seattle after only a year in Hawaii. After returning to Seattle, Ball attended Seattle High School and achieved top grades in the sciences, and she graduated in 1910. Apparently, her senior quote was, I work and work, and it still seems I have nothing done. (laughs) <laughs> like oh my god relatable Just feeling that in high school relate so relatable <laughs> <I know>. um <clears throat> she went on to study chemistry at the university of washington she earned a bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical chemistry in 1912 and then a second bachelor's degree in the science of pharmacy two years later in 1914 so is she passing as white or I at this time don't know because it seems like they're just letting her do whatever I literally couldn't tell. Or maybe just like Washington State is chill. It could be. I mean, they're so far away from D.C. that it's just like the weird upstairs uncle, you know? I know. Like so far away. I meant Oregon. (laughs) I said Washington, didn't I? Yep. I meant Oregon. (laughs) I'm picturing Oregon. So it's so far away. Yeah, I really, I don't know if she was huh i i can't tell (laughs) but we know that she continued demonstrating her immense brains and talent by publishing a 10-page article with one of her professors called benzoylations and ether solution Hmm. in the journal of the american chemical society uh this was very rare for a woman to be published in this let alone a black woman so everything kept saying that like it was rare for a black woman to be doing all this stuff so i i don't think that she was passing as white i don't think so i mean oregon became a a state i feel like late enough too that it would always have been a free state so i feel like there's just less it's not vibing as hard on that right 
But by the time she was finishing up her second bachelor's degree, she had a choice between two scholarships for her master's degree, Berkeley in California and at the University of Hawaii, which was like the college of Hawaii back right. then. Um, but yeah, so people are like fighting over her to like get her to come to their school because she's so fucking Hey, smart. please come. So she chose to go back to Hawaii where she had lived briefly to study for her master's degree in chemistry. I don't know if it was because like obviously California would have been closer to where her family was living mm. but maybe you know because like it's kind of brave to just be like I'm gonna go to this place extremely far away from like everything that I know and like she'd only lived there a year so yeah like, and I she was young imagine that like she <laughs> formed lifelong friendships um <laughs> but her master's thesis involved studying the chemical properties of the kava plant species or piper Mephisticum. This was a plant that was used to um, help anxiety and hyperactive illnesses, but it was also like a hallucinogen. So she was like, I'd love to extract the like thing that helps people feel better, but also like have it not be addictive. Make them trip balls. <laughs> like, because it wasn't necessarily that it was addictive, but it was mm. a hallucinogen. Uh -huh. So like people were like, yeah, I'm not feeling anxious, but I'm also like my fingers are turning into hot dogs. And right. I love for that like not to happen. Um, <laughs> so she was trying to figure out how to extract active ingredients in plants and use them for medicine. And with this, she became the first woman and the first African-American to earn a degree in chemistry from the University of Hawaii. And she was just one of the first women ever to earn an advanced degree in chemistry, which hmm. is very cool. Once she graduated, she was asked to work with a man named Dr. Harry Holman. He was a researcher who was studying Chalmugra oil. So what she was doing with the kava plant was exactly what he was trying to do with the Chalmugra plant and curing leprosy which is now referred to as Hansen's disease, but I'm going to keep calling it leprosy. <laughs> so any anyone... producer nicely pointed out Jesus already cured leprosy. He already cured that. <laughs> so anyone who went to church as a child or has seen the movie Princess Mononoke mm -hmm. has an idea of leprosy. This is a contagious disease that causes skin lesions. And basically, once you get it, you are sent away to live in a colony of your peers. And it's a death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. This is, of course, where the term leper comes from. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like we throw that around. And sometimes yeah. I wonder, like, do younger people even, like, know what exactly that means? No, I don't think so. So leprosy is a tricky little disease because even though it is one of the most well-known diseases and has been around since about 2000 BC, scientists are still not sure where it starts in the body, but, like, how it's transmitted a hundred percent, which hmm. I did not know. No, I didn't know that either. We also, fun fact, cannot grow leprosy bacteria in a culture. So it makes it really hard to study. Hmm. Leprosy is often portrayed as like, you know, big red lesions on the skin. And those do happen. But a lot of other terrible shit happens when you get this disease. Don't you like stop feeling? Yeah. You go numb and stuff? Yeah. Because it attacks the nerves. Like, they did, like, a whole little diagram of it on YouTube. But, yeah, it's actually attacking your nervous system. Um, your muscles are weakened. You lose your sense of touch. 
And then I did not know that this happened. You start to just like lose your fingers and toes. Yeah, it falls off. They just like fall off. And it looks terrible. And one of the worst parts about leprosy is that it moves really slow. So they were talking about how like something like, you know, like salmonella bacteria, like it doubles, it grows in your body super, super fast. Like it multiplies. Mm. Leprosy does not do that. Hmm. It does it like it'll multiply, like it'll double maybe over the course of like a couple of weeks, which I did not know. So it's very slow moving. So you're so, sitting there knowing you're going to die for a very long time yeah. and that your like extremities are going like, to start falling off decades. Yeah. Which I did not know, which I guess is why they were sent to colonies because like they couldn't just be with because it takes so long and it's like, contagious. You can yeah. pass it to other people. Yeah. Um, and it makes it really difficult to detect before you start getting bad symptoms. And it made it really difficult to treat. So obviously, <laughs> historically, nobody wants to get this. So people who had leprosy were forced into leper colonies where they just had to wait the slow, painful decay of their bodies. And the most ironic part about this is that it's actually not as contagious as we think. What? I you, thought it was like you touch somebody with leprosy, you get it. You have to have close contact with someone for years to get the disease. Wait, I don't understand that. What do now, you mean years? I don't know. That's what they said. And they said 95% of people like are like naturally immune to it too. But I also don't know if that means nowadays. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I, it was one of those facts that like they said in the video and I was like, it had to have been more contagious back in the day. Because it they were like, to if you touch been. somebody with leprosy, you yeah, like get You leprosy. had it. Yeah. yeah. I just, I don't know. But also, maybe, you know, it kind of seemed that way because people who already had leprosy didn't know for many years. So all of a sudden, like a whole family popped up with it at once. Right. That's true. That's true. So I don't know. But I was really shocked by that because I thought like, you, but like, it would take up to two years for you to start showing symptoms. And I mean, how many people had a different skin rash and were sent to a leper colony to then get leprosy? That's very true. Like that could have been happening because I feel like when really bad syphilis, that was like a big problem. Ooh, you get skin yeah. lesions with mm -hmm. syphilis and that was like all over Pompeii or something like women's bodies yeah. were decaying. Or just like eczema. Yeah. Anything. <laughs> like you have anything. eczema, you get sent to the leper colony and then of course you're going to get leprosy. Right. Oh God. So for centuries, people were forced into isolations. Some were nicer than others. Apparently, leper colonies in the Byzantine era were so nice that people sometimes faked leprosy in order to get in there. Excellent. <laughs> That's excellent. I mean, nothing tells you your country's doing great than yeah. people faking <laughs> a disease to get away from you. And then, of course, there are some pretty gnarly ones that you would not wish on your worst enemy. One of the most well-known leper colonies throughout history existed in Hawaii. And Homer it, Simpson went there. Did he? In an episode. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that, that at all. That definitely happens. Homer Simpson goes to a leper <gasps> colony. Oh, God. Now it's coming back to me. Yeah. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> so he... Oh, he... <laughs> um, so this one was kind of like... I'll call it like an in-between of like the Byzantine Empire and like really terrible and like where Nellie Bly was hanging out yeah. <laughs> it was called Kalopapa 
Okay. So Hawaii is a beautiful place to live, but kind of upsetting when you are not allowed to like leave the area you're in or ever see your family again. (laughs) (laughs) The Kalapapa leper colony existed from around 1866 to 1969. Oh my gosh. Over a hundred years. And I was watching some videos about it and like, it was hard because there were like kids sent there. So like if you got leprosy as a kid and they were sent to this, like, you literally just grew up there. And, like, there were some people who went in and, like, made it nicer, like, over time. Like, they were like, okay, these people shouldn't be, like, punished for this. Like, we should, like, make a school and, like, make a, a, a community um, here. But, like, it was not, like, the best situation. I wonder, like, how many people had, like, relationships and stuff, too. Yeah. Like, if you're there for decades. Yeah. You, like, can end up, like, marrying somebody mm-hmm. else or, like, things like that. Yeah. And um, but yeah, there was like this woman who was like, yeah, my parents contracted leprosy when I was a kid and like they got sent to this leper colony. She's like, I never saw them again. Like, <laughs> I just, just like given to other people. I like, never think about that type of shit. That's I know. crazy. Yeah. Wild. And this was like, she's the daughter's still alive today. Like this. <laughs> like the 50s. <sighs> so when Alice Ball started working with Dr. Hallman to find a cure, Hawaii was a pretty great place to do it. <laughs> Honestly. They literally had seen thousands of leprosy patients over the years. Calm down. It's ground zero. <laughs> so Chalmugra oil seemed like a good start to a cure because communities in India had been using the oil with its natural antibacterial properties for years centuries to treat skin diseases but there was a problem applying it topically like wasn't doing enough like it wasn't getting rid of the problem um and injecting the oil wasn't working because it was too thick it was too viscous so they would inject it and it would just clump under the skin someone described it and i hate doing this to everyone i'm so sorry as like bubble wrap like, we're just like, you're your already skin? dealing with leprosy. And oh, so, no. so sorry, everyone. So, but it was like in your veins, but bubbling up. This is not good. Not good. I feel like you shouldn't inject anything in your body if it's clumpy. No. <laughs> so this is where Alice is thriving. She goes, there's a problem to solve and I'm going to solve it. Good for her. So she gets Jinkies. to work and she has the idea to isolate the active ingredient in the oil, which she had been doing with the kava oil and transform it into a substance that can be absorbed into the skin. So the first step is saponification. This is the same process that turns fats and oil into soaps. So basically purifying the active ingredients, which then she turns into ethyl ester molecules that are water soluble. So she's basically kind of like turning the oil like into salt so it can dissolve into water, like into liquid. So that meant our bodies, if they were injected, could break them down and use them to fight the disease. So she's like melting it down. Yeah, she basically like, I would say it's more like she dries it out. Mm-hmm. So it becomes kind of like a, like a salt substance. Okay. And like salt disintegrates into water. Oh, it's like what they do with caffeine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she takes that. Every doctor who listens to this is going to be like, that is not what it is. Okay. Um, but basically like she kind of like, dries it out from what I under like extracts it dries it out and then once you get the dry ingredient you can put it into like a liquid it disintegrates into the liquid and then it's not clumping got it okay 
This meant that our bodies could then in intake it, <laughs> break it down, and use it to fight the disease. And it fucking worked. Her ethyl esters were a safer, more reliable treatment for leprosy than anything that had come before. And when her methods started to be used, leprosy patients started to recover, and they were discharged by the hundreds from hospitals. Katie, they were growing fingers back. <laughs> I don't know about all that, but they weren't <laughs> losing any more of them, that's for sure. Were people's penises falling off? <sighs> that's a good question. If fingers and toes are going, I would imagine the penis penises would go are too. going. Ooh. But unfortunately, Alice would never see the effects of her work. <sighs> On December 31st, 1916, Alice Ball passed away suddenly at her family's home in Seattle. Wait, 1916? Uh-huh. She, like, just went there. Mm-hmm. The cause of death was listed as tuberculosis, but many people think that it may have been chlorine poisoning due to exposure while teaching in the laboratory. So someone was saying that, like, because also, like, I didn't mention this, but she's also a full-time professor, like, while she's doing all of this, like, ground, while she's curing leprosy. <laughs> so she's in this classroom and apparently she was like talking about something and she inhaled some kind of substance that i read chlorine i don't know if that was it and then she started to get really really sick and she was sick for a couple months she was like maybe i'll go home to seattle to like be with my family see if like resting will make it better but on december 31st 1916 she died She was 24 years old. Can you even fucking imagine? She did that by the time she was 24? Yeah. She cured leprosy. Before she was 24. Yeah. God damn. What have I been doing? Uh, A colleague of hers in Hawaii, he was like kind of like the head of the department, I think, knew, obviously, about the work that she was doing and her discovery. So he was like, okay, like, I'll just keep up with her work. And in 1919, started producing a large quantity of the injectable Chalmugra extract, all while publishing papers and conducting studies on what he called the Dean Method. Of course, leaving Alice's name off of everything. What a dick. So Arthur Dean basically takes her work, starts toting it around as like his discovery, And even when he was, like, being interviewed about his breakthrough discovery in 1921, he cited that, well, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. I couldn't do it without the help of my colleagues. And he named everyone in the department except for Alice. (laughs) That's so frustrating. Why? I don't know. But one guy saw through this bullshit. Our old friend, Dr. Holloman who was the one who believed in Alice, brought her in. Hired her in the first place. I am the one who brought her in because I knew that she was working on the exact thing that she did to cure leprosy. (laughs) So he started to correct the narrative. He published a paper in 1922 giving credit to Alice, calling the injectable form of the oil the ball method multiple times throughout the article in bold print (laughs) good for him and when arthur dean tried to say well no i like i improved the method that already existed hallman pushed back again saying this is a quote from his response 
I cannot see that there is any improvement whatsoever over the original technique as worked out by Ms. Ball. The original method will allow any physician in any asylum for lepers in the world with a little study to isolate and use the ethyl esters of Chalmugra fatty acids in treating his cases. While the complicated distillation in vacuole will require very delicate and not always obtainable apparatus. The last part, we don't need. But the first part. Yeah, but the second part, he's saying whatever you added to it, people yeah. don't need. Yeah. People don't need that. They need what she did. Yes. So I love that he is like, no, no, no. It's called the ball method, and she came up with it. Like, you did not improve on her method whatsoever. He is publicly shaming this man, and yes. I love it. Arthur. <laughs> but Hallman's efforts would go unnoticed, and Alice's ball name would go unremembered for decades. And while Arthur Dean went on to become the president of the University of Hawaii, <sighs> The next big break in the kind of case of Alice Ball would not come until the 1970s <gasps> when Catherine Takara, a professor at the University of Hawaii, was doing some research on the history of black people in Hawaii. She was having a hard time finding any history at all of black people in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, like, especially black women. So when she came across Alice, she was stunned flabbergasted and she was like she was absolutely shocked so she writes this article about her she goes hey guys this woman like found a cure for leprosy like that's like she was like an un you know i don't even know if she knew exactly what she had done but she was like this woman was here she was a researcher she was a professor she's really fucking cool so then a name named stanley ali he was a professor from maryland Hello. Hi, hi, hi. Who would escape the winter in Hawaii every year. Must be nice. And on one of his visits, he saw an article that Catherine had published about Alice. And then he got Alice fever as well. And him and another guy named Paul Warmager dove deeper and deeper into Alice's story. In fact, most of the information we have now came from this team trying to find out whatever they could about her. In fact, these guys were the ones that uncovered the biggest part of her story, that Alice's name was erased from her work. So, like, you think about Catherine in the 70s didn't even know that part yet. <laughs> and she was already trying to bring attention to her. Like, and her name had been just taken off the documents. Yeah. So these two guys figured it out. But it took another 30 years for the University of Hawaii itself to start acknowledging Alice's accomplishments. The University of Hawaii finally honored Alice in 2000 by dedicating a plaque to her on the school's only Chalmugra tree behind Bachman Hall. On the same day, the governor of Hawaii, uh, Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii, Mazi Hirono, just uh, declared, sorry, February 29th as Alice Ball Day, which is now celebrated every four years. In 2007, the University Board of Regents honored her with a Medal of Distinction, the school's highest honor. In 2016, Hawaii Magazine placed her on its list of the most influential women in Hawaiian history. In 2018, a new park in Seattle's Greenwood neighborhood was named after Ball. In 2019, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine added her name to the freeze. Or freeze I don't know what that is. Obviously, I copy and pasted that. <laughs> the something atop its main building. 
Her name is up there with Florence Nightingale and Marie Curie. Stop it! In recognition of their contributions to science and global health research. Alice! In 2020, a satellite was named after her. <laughs> and on February 28, 2022, Hawaii Governor David Ige signed a proclamation declaring February 28th Alice Augusta Ball Day. So that one's happening every year, not just every four years. Good. And also in 2020, students at the University of Hawaii started a petition to rename Dean Hall, yes, after Arthur Dean, who stole her work. They wanted to rename it after Alice Ball. I, which like, I'm wondering if the biggest hiccup in this plan is that it would be called Ball Hall. <laughs> you could call it Alice Ball Hall. Alice Ball Hall. It is Alice. I don't know. It like Ball Hall. That's good. Ball I hall. like that. You could have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, you could. I don't think that one has happened yet, but I would love to see it. Alice's story is unfortunate. But unfortunately, not rare. Throughout history, we have seen the accomplishments of women, especially women of color, overlooked. And in this case, straight up stolen. <laughs> it happens all the time. But I am grateful that people are doing the work to uncover these stories and set history straight. And I hope that we learn more about Alice and all the other women who this has happened to absolutely yeah all right that's the story of alice ball what a great one so much leprosy talk yeah gross <laughs> all right i didn't so, like that at all no. so now we need to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other and a little something we like to call just the two of us um i guess i can point out that hawaii and the uk are both islands <laughs> Should we start with that? This is going to be a hard one. A fun one, but a hard one. This is going to be a hard one. I was also thinking about, like, how both of their family members were, like, famous-ish, you know? like in the, in the field that they're looking for. Well, and they had people in their lives that, like, did do great things. You know, it's very cool to me that, like, Alice Ball's grandfather photographed Charles Dickens and Frederick Douglass. Right. That's insane very to me. Very cool. And, and Julie, Julie's father helped... In the London Blitz. Exactly. Big deal. Like, so I think that there is a sense, even though, like, I think their family lives were very different. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, Julie's was a lot more disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> she had a lot more people coming in and out, you know? <laughs> and I feel like with Alice, like, her story is a lot more stable, which is not what you would think when you would look at them. These two girls, you would switch their stories. You would. Yeah, and the way that they grew up. I absolutely think that. Mm -hmm. Which and is, it, again, a form of, like, kind of, like, standard prejudice I think we all have. Agree. Like, totally you agree. never think that Julie Andrews lived out of a suitcase as a child. Right. Never. And then you also, like, both of them were women that were being, like, begged for. Like, Alice Ball, they were like, please come to my university. And Julie Andrews was, like, a not auditioning for shit. They were just like, yeah. we want you. Mm -hmm. Well, because they were so good at such a young age. And they kind of stayed on the same path throughout their life. Absolutely. I was thinking about last week we did Gertrude Bell, mm -hmm. who, I mean, her story went so many different directions. <laughs> that is not how their stories went. No. They were very, very good at something, and they did it until one of them died and obviously one of them is still alive yeah um, but you know like they kind of stayed on that same path because they were being told like you're very good at this mm -hmm. like how many other people like were also good at chemistry but like didn't have 
people offering them the opportunities that Alice was getting. And I'm not saying that to say that she didn't deserve them. She obviously did. Mm -hmm. But like, was it because she was in the geographical area she was in? You know what I'm saying? Like if she'd grown up in Alabama, would (laughs) in Alabama, Alabama (laughs) in the early 1900s, would she have been given and obviously this is not saying that like racism didn't exist in (laughs) seattle washington you know whatever you know that whole area but i think that that's a part of it is like where did they grow up you know what i'm saying no i mean place and time is always going to be important Mm -hmm. place and time just like it helps with your circumstances and sometimes it makes life harder and sometimes it makes life easier and I think accomplishments also come during your life and come after your life like Mm -hmm. there are Julie Andrews has been given every award in human history except for a Tony (laughs) and I feel like Alice Ball got all those things too she's got a building named after her or maybe she has you know awards named after her and this and that and papers and that's important and Julie Andrews has that too like name recognition is something that for a long time women weren't given and now we're like fighting to get that back yeah well it's the difference between like like julie andrews was given so much credit at one point that she didn't even feel like she deserved the tony nomination that she got right she was like i feel like i just got it because of my name and yet and it's so funny to put that against someone whose name has been i'm not even gonna say forgotten i'm gonna say pushed out of the conversation Mm -hmm. like it's not that People were giving her credit at the time. I mean, obviously, Dr. Hallman was, but, like, it's not like people were giving credit at the time and we just hadn't heard her story. She was literally left out of the documentation. Mm. It's taken people decades to uncover the little bit we know about her. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And she did an incredible thing, you know? It's also funny. I was just thinking about the parallels between, like, you know, obviously one of Julie Andrews' most famous songs is like, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine mm-hmm. go down. And then we have someone who like literally was trying to make medicine go down easier. <laughs> she was like, I don't want your skin to turn on a bubble wrap. Like, yeah. I am going to try and break this down for you. Let me protect you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah, I just think it's, um, yeah, two very different, different women. <laughs> if, yeah, but still ama- like amazing in their own, their own right. Mm-hmm. And like obviously one's still kicking. Yeah. <laughs> I, every time we do someone who dies at such a young age, I'm like devastated. What else could Alice Ball have done? I know. And now they're all like younger than me too. Yeah. It's well, like really upsetting. And she would have been there to keep her name on the paperwork. Yeah. That's what's really so frustrating to me is like she never saw that her thing fucking worked. She never saw that thousands of people were <laughs> Cured. cured because of her work you know like i don't know that really it bums me out because someone asked her like well do you think if alice ball had remained alive that i was listening to an interview with um catherine the one person who like kind of rediscovered her story in the 70s and they said do you think that if catherine had remained alive like she would have been given credit and she said no but i don't actually 
agree like obviously i'm not an expert but like i don't really know if i would agree with that i think she was there all those guys were working with her yeah it's just this one guy arthur dean yeah and like if he was the first person to publish a study it's really hard to go out against somebody in the public Mm -hmm. and like fight back yeah and i think that if she had been alive i because like obviously the person who hired her was dr holloman and he was fighting for her after she died so like i think if she was like, I'm going to publish this. He'd be like, great, use your name. Yeah. You know, I don't think he'd be like, let's let Mr. Dean take care of this. Like, <laughs> yeah, no obviously he wasn't okay with it. So I don't know. I think that, I think she would have gotten more recognition if she had stayed alive. It's a and real Wilhelmina really Fleming situation. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. Oh. Well, now we need to toast these women. So Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I just... We said she's a lovely person. <laughs> a million times. I can't think of anything else to say, but like cheers to a life well lived. Yeah. Like good for you. Everyone mm-hmm. loves you. Like I can't. So true. An cheers. amazing person. What about you? I'm going to toast the women whose names have not been put back on their work yet. Mm. It really bums me out. Um, and I don't think that, again, like I literally just said, I don't think that Alice would have been passively like, yeah, it's okay if you take my name off of it. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think she would have done that. No. I think she would be like, no, I did this work. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm claiming it. So to all the women who have not had their work reclaimed yet, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I'm just going to say it. We do this like every week, but we're actually, because this is the end of the season, we're taking a break. Um, And if you listen to Patron last week, you know our plan is we're going to do one episode that is a repost, which I think I'm going to do the Barbie Sally Ride (gasps) episode. I love that episode. It's a good episode and the Barbie movie's coming out, so there's a lot of hype for it. So I think I'm going to do that one. And Mm -hmm. then... We're doing an episode on the Court of Thorns and Roses. So I'm going to promo the Court of Thorns and Roses <laughs> again. So this is like good. the 20th time we've done this on our show. But it's my favorite book series. Katie got me a necklace of the Mountains <laughs> of Valaris for Christmas, which I stare at every night because I hate that I don't live there. <laughs> and I just, if you don't want spoilers, get on it. You can finish these, like, so... This episode's coming out, then there'll be a repost, and then our episode. So you have two weeks to read these books. And trust me, you will. I'm not even going to say You'll finish can. it in two weeks. You will finish. You will finish it in two weeks. It is that addictive. <laughs> and I, I mean, as I've said before, I listen to it like once a year. I read it in print like once a year. <laughs> I read, especially the second one, like if I'm having a bad, if I'm having a bad time of it, I will start in the second book when mm-hmm. Reese picks her up from the wedding mm-hmm. and read through the cabin and mm-hmm. then be like, okay, I'm done for a while. Yeah. <laughs> that's just all I needed. And that's it. I just need that, like, li- those little moments. Those moments. And then if I'm feeling like a tricky bitch, I read the beginning half of the third one. Anyway, the point is you need to, if you are fine with spoilers and you'll read it after, Fine. Come join us. Come join us. But if you want a no spoiler, yeah. uh, women, Avery Bray asked for this, women of the Court of Thorns and Roses in two weeks. Yes. Start reading. We're going to cover it. Ah! I really want to talk about freaking Alice because I did not realize until 
I was like listening to the podcast about the book. That she's a bark that woman. She's a bark. <laughs> she's a tree like a woman. Bark face. <laughs> she's a tree woman. She's got those limbs. Yeah. So Nobby. we're going to get into I'm gonna it. I'm going to talk about Ianthe. And, and here's the thing. It's like we are doing this because we would love to cover like Feyre Artron as, but we literally, it's such a new book series and it's yeah. so ongoing that too many spoilers. We can't do it as like a regular no. episode uh-uh. because then like if we did like, you know, freaking Jill Biden on the same one and people wanted to listen to Jill Biden but haven't read the book series. Yeah, it'd be, be, it'd be problematic. Yeah, we're just going to have to do a separate Court of Thorns and Roses podcast where we do chapter by chapter. <laughs> I love that. Um, We're now staying a half an hour later. All right. <laughs> if you want us to keep going on this book series, let us know. Yeah. But thank you all for being here now. Thank you. What for are you going to promo? Oh, that's right. Me fresh off the boat. My God. Yes. I've been watching this show. It's a good show. It's so good. It's a good show. Um, it takes place in 1995 onward. And so it's like the music of <laughs> me growing up and like, there's three boys. I had three brothers. Like, I feel like the main character, Eddie is like every boy in the 90s and he was he's so great and I love him and I also want to say that like the show went on for a long time and Constance Wu got a lot of flack because it was renewed and she like was like I'm so mad about this on Twitter and people were like you're such a bitch and then she attempted suicide because she got cyber bullied so fucking hard and I just want to defend Constance Wu because apparently it's because she was being like sexually harassed by one of the producers on the show mm. and that's why she didn't want to go back and I just want to defend her because like fucking stop doing that to people who don't deserve it yeah I like fu- I really I hate it um also I have a public announcement to make this doesn't happen to us because we don't have enough people commenting on our posts but <laughs> ever if you if you find a mistake in a podcast or something and you go to the comment section and other people have been like oh hey like you said the capital of maryland was baltimore but it's actually annapolis if a couple of people have said it you don't have to repeat it no it's already been done it's already been done been said you don't have to say it again you don't have to feel like a big man and again this is just because like i think we really need to uh do something about cyberbullying yeah online. i, think I agree the worst thing ever. Uh, and yeah, so just none of our listeners would ever do anything like that. I trust you guys wholeheartedly. Um, but yeah, I just want to say that. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, type it out and then delete it. And then delete it. Whatever. Exactly. If you just have to get it out of your system. So anyways, thank you for all, all for listening today. Yeah. And I love you. And if you want to stick around, we are, every week we do an extra Patreon bonus. Sure do it's gonna be really fun you learn a lot about our personal lives and for just as little as a dollar a month you can have like 10 more minutes of this which is wouldn't want that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we're gonna take a couple weeks off and then we'll be back with a banger season for what is that season 15 15 perhaps featuring whoopi goldberg i don't know maybe i don't know maybe the cheshire cat herself All right, but thank you again. We love you. We'll see you next season. And well-behaved women. (laughs) They rarely ever talk about Princess Diana. God! (laughs) And they really make history. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 